0: Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Gray's Inn Students.
1: Hi and welcome to this episode of the Raising the Bar podcast. I'm Kira Church and today I will be talking to Marion Smith-Kesey, a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, and Annie Mackley, a pupil barrister with Crown Office Chambers. And we're talking about climate litigation and sustainability at the bar. And if we could just start off with talking about why each of us are interested in talking about climate litigation and a bit how we've come to to this topic today. Maybe if um Annie, you could start?
2: Yes. Well, I first became really interested in climate litigation during the pandemic, actually, which I think provided lots of people with an opportunity to think about their priorities and think about um the, the state that our society is in. Um and at the time I was a student on the bar course, thinking about this industry that I was about to join and thinking about how people within that industry could use their positions
0: to
1: influence this issue. Amazing. And Marianne?
0: I think that the arbitration space has been aware for a period of time of two things. The charge to net zero was going to affect how we practice and what we practised. And there has been a clear movement, uh, starting with the greener arbitration movement, to challenge the way in which arbitration is pursued and to prepare arbitration to deal with the climate change, sustainability, net zero disputes that was starting to come into the space about five, six years ago with the investment treaty arbitrations business to state, where I think they were first raising the climate related issues. So having been in, sitting as an arbitrator, a as arbitrator, in a dynamic educated environment, you had to become engaged in it. But then I agree, Annie, I think you're right. I think the pandemic, whether it has brought us increasingly aware of how interrelated we all are. You you can't live in your UK silo, your English litigation silo. We are all in it together, but we're not all equal. I think, and that period of, of reflection that we've been given through working from home, having to Take time away from the busyness of our lives has encouraged deeper th- thought, further thought. And I think one of the truths we've all come out of this pandemic with is knowing that we just simply have to address these big questions. I'm aware that I might be sounding pompous, am I? Am I, Kira, Annie? Or... <laughs> no,
2: not at all. But, absolutely <laughs> not. I think that's a sentiment that lots of people will relate to.
1: It seems that. Um, Sustainability at the bar and specifically in arbitration then seems to be like a growing issue if it has sped up um, because of the pandemic, but a slowly growing issue. Would you say that the bar is aware of sustainability issues and its position and its responsibility towards sustainability?
2: Well, we certainly can't speak for the whole bar, but I think it's certainly an issue that's growing in awareness. Um, for example, the Bar Council began their sustainability network in uh, 2020, so relatively recently, and it's already had 43 chambers sign up to it, uh, which I think is great progress, but there's certainly more work to be done.
0: Yes, I agree. And if you look there are an increasing number of groupings forming. I mean, you've got the Net Zero Lawyers Alliance, the Greener Arbitrations, the Mediators Green Pledge. They're just illustrations. So I think that you'll see increasing awareness of this as an issue.
1: Definitely. So those groups that have formed,
0: what specifically um, are they tackling? Well, I think they're trying to tackle both aspects, both the how how we practice and how we deal with the disputes that we have and the disputes that we are dealing with. The how we practice, I think, is the easy part of it. Most of them have a list of commitments that they ask us all to consider, to consider both for ourselves as professionals and also to encourage our clients to adopt. Um, I mean, Ania, is that what you're finding?
2: Yes, absolutely. There are all sorts of initiatives, like uh, the Bar Sustainability Network is encouraging chambers to sign up to use only renewable electricity. Similarly, things like the Greener Arbitration Pledge, uh, as I understand it, ask people to commit to reducing their international travel and offsetting travel uh by plane where they can. Things like doing remote hearings where possible and reducing the uh amount of Paper bundles that people are using. So there are certainly lots of concrete commitments that people can sign up to if they're in a position to do so.
0: Yes, I mean it goes to considering whether you can use video technology if it's appropriate, access accessible, and acceptable. Then to encourage its use, they even you're right about carbon emissions. You're asked to think about them. You're asked to offset, and you're asked also to acknowledge that in fact offsetting is not really the answer the best answer is simply not to fly the use of email you're encouraged not to send letters uh, because of course was the use of paper use email but would you also acknowledge that electronic communication itself is carbon emitting and you should only use it when necessary all sorts of ranges of steps you can take and then of course they ask you to do simple things like to put you're signed to it. one of the pledges, and then to put that on your emails so that everybody you communicate with gets a nudge, a prompt, a reminder of the necessity for doing this. Are you finding, Annie, that um, the clients are taking the lead with this um, rather than the bar, that they're coming to the bar with a more advanced preparation for dealing with uh, net zero and climate change?
2: I think that's probably true. Um, I know that many, many solicitors firms are signed up to these kinds of initiatives. um, And likewise, that's because that aligns with the interests of their clients. So actually, I think a lot of pressure is coming from solicitors firms um, to drive change at the bar, which I think can sometimes be more difficult because the self-employed bar certainly is a collection of individuals, and it's up to them to decide how to manage their practices whereas there's more top-down leadership in solicitors' firms. And so I think it's sometimes easier for them to, uh, to sign up to environmental commitments um, and to
0: implement that all the way through an organisation. Because I certainly think that the drive to paperless practice, which we'd been talking about for a decade, really met its time during the pandemic when suddenly you could not get papers delivered to you and you couldn't get them delivered on time. And I've certainly seen within my own chambers a huge shift towards just working paperless.
1: It seems like there's kind of a massive onus on individual barristers to undertake these changes, kind of, as you're saying, um, taking the steps to go paperless, sending emails and using video links rather than in person. Um, and I guess for a lot of viruses, they're more than happy to do these changes, especially with the pandemic, it, it's easier. Um, and for those who are kind of conscious, they would prefer it. But do you think there is a challenge to kind of getting everyone um, and to kind of overturn the, the traditions that are so highly um, ingrained in in the bar? I guess it is a very traditional profession um, and a lot of the traditions Are always going to be maintained even though there is a need to change so i guess i'm asking what do you think the main challenges are for the entire industry to kind of commit
0: um to sustainability kira the challenge is the dinosaurs like me because ultimately (laughs) i have to act in my client's best interests and i'm afraid i sometimes just need to have paper i don't know what it is about knowing the case but i have found that i can identify documents just by where they are in the depth of a file <laughs> and and i know where the passage i need is on any page by its position on the paper it's it it's bizarre it simply reflects the fact that that's what i've always done but i confess to having my iPad and I've got my paginated PDF bundles and my Apple pencil. And yes, I am to an extent paperless, but for that cross-examination, that reading of the contract, I'm going to print off and I'm not sure I'm ever going to be able to change, but there you are. That's a dinosaur speaks. What are your challenges, Annie? Are you paperless? I,
2: um, I try not to use paper where possible, but likewise, sometimes I find it so much easier just to have, have the papers in front of me and a highlighter at the ready. Um, (laughs) But I I try to avoid it where possible. But I can imagine that in your practice, Marion, where you're often for international clients, sometimes the need to fly is just unavoidable. And that's not necessarily for the barristers, but possibly also for witnesses and clients. And in those circumstances, you have to act in their best interests.
0: Except that we've all, because we've had this, you can almost say it's been an enforced experiment. We would never have trialed video um, hearings in the way we have over the last 18 months. We had no option. So we have simply had to make it work. And the lesson is, uh, it has. We've discovered there are some things that don't work but we've discovered an awful lot of it does work, that you can schedule hearings so that people on the west coast of the United States and people in Sydney are online at the same time with arbitrators scattered at all points in between and make it work. You can make a good stab at witness, not even a good stab, you can get witnesses to give evidence in the same way or to the same effect giving evidence of the same weight through a video hearing, the same with expert evidence. So I predict that we will come out of the pandemic with perhaps some cases still being heard in the full face-to-face hearing, with there being occasions when people will want to see each other face-to-face, but largely they're going to insist upon it staying online. It's less disruptive of business and the belief is, although I've yet to see accurate date data, the belief is it's cheaper.
2: Absolutely. And I think that's something that's really important actually about um, sustainability at the bar mm. is often drive to run cases cheaply totally aligns with sustainability goals. A case that settles at an early stage is not a case that later on incurs the need for extensive bundles and travel whether that be national or international so in some ways acting in the client's best interest and in accordance with the overriding objective in terms of costs can help to support support sustainability and litigation as well
0: and they've also found and this, this i had never heard of being discussed that online mediation works now again we, we don't have the hard data But anecdotally, the mediators are reporting they're reaching pretty much the same success rates through online mediation. They have, again, learnt a vast number of skills. They are now very confident in running an online mediation. So, taking Annie's point, and perhaps the potential to introduce mandatory mediation, we're going to see disputes that would once have been expensively litigated in a non-sustainable way, being resolved in a highly efficient way, efficient in terms of time, money, and sustainability. It's almost a message of hope, don't you think, Kira?
1: (laughs) Definitely. And I think you're both kind of saying that as we move forward, we do just need to have sustainability as one of the factors that we would consider in making these decisions of how we do things. So as well as cost being an element, we really need to push for sustainability to be an element. Um, And it's, whilst obviously the pandemic has been horrific and awful, um, I guess one good thing that has come out of it is that we are more willing um, to use new methods and try new things which hopefully will be continued into the future. Um, but kind of talking about these skills that we're kind of learning and how mediation um, mediators are learning new skills so that they can adapt to being online. What kind of skills do you think barristers, um, both in practice and students like me, should really hone in on and work on so that they're in the best position to implement sustainability in their practice? another big
0: question (laughs) well let me start with one small thought for you and I'd be interested in your thoughts about 12 months ago somebody said to me as I finished a cross-examination um well that was you know all very good using traditional methods but how are you going to cross-examine a hologram and at the time I thought "Mm, Star Trek Star Wars I shan't worry about that (laughs) and then last week and i think it might have been around the edges of the bar conference people were talking about the work that's being done to get holograms up and running as the next stage in video conferencing for hearings so i've been thinking what are the challenges of cross-examining a hologram now i suspect that my picture of a hologram is reflective of the 1980s and it will be a far smoother outcome But that, I think, is the springboard for the skills that I suggest we might all need to acquire. We're going to have to be completely open to new technology and new methods. This is a space which 18 months ago, none of us knew what Zoom stood for. And if you look back and remember your first Zoom conference, you're probably streets ahead now on dealing with screen sharing, chat, Q&A boxes. It's moving all the time. The next thing that I think we're gonna have to think about, and this is moving perhaps into the disputes that we are going to be dealing with. I think that a a strong knowledge of human rights is going to be crucial because the social, environmental and governmental issues that climate change uh, raises is being now considered at board level for business when i started commercial judicial review was rarely rarely seen it was mentioned but it you know it was like um a unicorn or a hen with teeth now it's real now judicial review is being used to challenge government and the whole human rights agenda is being discussed in the board so i think those are skills that i would be looking to acquire knowledge of human rights and a knowledge of judicial review, even if you know you want to do commercial work, company work, construction work. I think also it would help to be aware of the challenges of large scale litigation, multi-party litigation, because the climate change private litigation we're seeing in the United Kingdom, and Annie will no doubt have a view about this, in many cases is the group action. It's the individuals who are impacted by the dam, the the water, the road, the, the airport, coming together and mounting the challenge. And I think if you've got any experience or knowledge about how to deal with that, that would be worthwhile. And then the other thing I think we're going to have to deal with is dealing with the science, understanding what net zero is, how you get there, How you manage if you've failed to achieve a net zero commitment and how you put a value on that. Because everything I hear is that the law of causation and the law of damages may not at the moment be able to address those issues. And I think if you're a council and you at least understand the scientific concepts, you can then help to fashion the probably not novel, but fashion the modifications of our rules that we're going to need. So that would be my sort of first take at what's a huge question.
2: Absolutely. I completely agree. And I think one of the key difficulties in this area for anyone considering practising in it is how quickly not only the science moves, but also the legislation in this area, particularly for companies, Even in the last year or so, we've seen really significant initiatives in the EU and in the UK towards uh, controlling corporate disclosure, what investments can be considered sustainable and what they can be marketed as. And I think it's really key for anyone with an interest in this area to keep up with that, with those developments in legislation, in order to be able to advise clients. On what their position is under law which changes very very quickly and under the science as well climate attribution science which is the science of uh, how particular contributions to emissions can be tied to particular real world effects is moving very rapidly and as Marion mentioned that's going to be absolutely key to climate litigation in the coming years it seems in such
1: a growing and new area of law, it's just important to be on top of everything you can really um to kind of equip yourself. Um human rights as mentioned um and also understanding the intersect of different areas, um, which leads us on nicely to what kind of disputes will new disputes will there be and are we currently seeing um in climate litigation?
2: A really useful resource on this topic is the UNEP Global Climate Litigation Report. Uh, which the UN produces, and it helpfully identifies different trends in climate litigation. So some of the important things they noted for 2020 um, were things like, we may come to see more litigation on climate change-based displacement, climate refugees, immigration law, uh, which isn't something that I previously considered. And then another thing that we're likely to see is increasing litigation all over the world on climate change, not only in the global north, but also in countries in the global south. That's definitely something that we're already seeing. That report identifies cases that have been brought in countries like Colombia, Peru, Pakistan, South Africa, all over the place in the last three years alone. And I think that's something that we're probably going to see a lot more of in the future.
1: Amazing. And if you could share that resource with us, um, we'd love to put it um, when we share this podcast. I think a lot of people would really benefit from having that access. Absolutely. It's a really interesting
0: read. If I could just pick up on something that Annie said when she was talking about the Global North and the Global South, seeing climate change litigation, I think that we will, will as practitioners, need to be able to talk about these disputes in both a common law and a civil law tradition because I think we will find that the courts across the world look to each other to find out how judges, arbitrators, neutral dispute resolvers are fashioning remedies, fashioning causation principles, even fashioning principles of private law and public law to address these big questions. So I think that we will perhaps see, I have to be tentative about it, but we may start to see the emergence of something which is a global approach. And perhaps we can move away from the silo of common law and civil law.
2: I think it's very interesting that you mentioned the the difference between common law and civil law, Marion, because one of the biggest cases I can think of in the climate litigation sphere in the last couple of years was the group action that was brought against Royal Dutch Shell in the Netherlands, where I think it was 17,000 claimants were relying on the Dutch civil code to argue that Shell's emissions were, uh, were breaching their rights, and they were successful in doing so. Shell are appealing the decision, but nonetheless, it was a very interesting use of, uh, of a civil code to support successful climate change litigation.
0: Absolutely, Annie. That was, that was one of the reasons, one of the cases I was thinking about on this. We ought to put that into the programme notes. And of course, it, it was a decision in, in Holland. I think there have been a couple since and it has been used and cited around the world. I think a
1: global approach is so necessary. And Marion, you reminded me um, as you were talking, when I was studying for my undergrad, I did international human rights. And there was such an emphasis on in the course of looking at different regional systems and the difference between different constitutions and charters. And it also thinking of that reminded me of the main issue when we were studying the different systems was enforcement and what is the true effect of this climate litigation? And whilst it's effective and increasingly claimants are winning in court, how effective is that in practice?
0: Kira, enforcement is the key question for all forms of judgment or award. I'm going to say smugly that in the arbitration space, we have the benefit of the New York Convention, which is um, a treaty to which most of the countries in this world are signatory. And it means that you can take an arbitration award and enforce it through the state courts in many countries. We've also now got the Singapore Convention, which is aiming to do the same thing for a settlement reached in mediation. It doesn't have as many signatories as the New York Convention at the moment, but it's new. And what it is doing is gaining signatories all the time. Enforcement through the courts is always a challenge, but again, I don't hear that enforcement is the problem. The problem as I understand it, is getting the judgment in the first place. I'd be interested in Annie's experience on that.
2: Yes, I think the issue of remedies is really difficult in this sphere because it seems to me that often it will be very difficult for damages to adequately reflect the cost of climate change. It's not something that the courts are very well prepared to consider, I don't think. And it's often not something which claimants will feel adequately reflects what they and the rest of their world have lost. Um, So I think that's one difficulty. Another difficulty, I think, is especially in cases of judicial review, the remedies which a court can grant are really limited. And often declaratory relief is not going to produce any change, even if uh, government bodies have found to be acting unlawfully. That is, however, something that really differs in different jurisdictions. So in the UK, it would be very unlikely, I think, for a court to grant you know, an injunction requiring a government to change its policy. That would just simply not happen. But that has happened in other jurisdictions, in Pakistan, for example, um, where courts have granted injunctions requiring the government to change aspects of its transport and energy policy so again perhaps that's something where uh, where we can learn from what other
0: courts in other countries are doing because of course all that many claimants want is for the perpetrator to clean it up to decontaminate the land and i'm not sure that at the moment we necessarily have the remedies to achieve that you can as an individual claimant, be given some money. But then you as a group have got to keep that money together to then pay for the cleanup yourselves. So enforcement is going to be a real challenge the moment that you look at it in, in the bigger sense and perhaps not with the private law eyes that I have.
1: Yeah, it seems like a real opportunity for innovation um, in pursuing different remedies. And I was just going to ask if whilst we were talking about how it's an opportunity to learn from different countries and different jurisdictions, is it also important that um, we get some consistency um, globally and for claimants here in one country to have some certainty of knowing of, of what remedies they can obtain um,
0: to kind of encourage litigation, I guess? Well, you're talking about the question of funding and I was hoping we'd have an opportunity to talk about the need to do pro bono in this space because it's going to be a constant challenge for individual claimants to bring these cases. And to date, they have relied on uh, firms who are prepared to do. I'm not quite sure how they do it. I mean, do they do it by a mixture of pro bono, third party funding, uh, contingency fee arrangements, damages based agreements, And the moment I talked about the last two damages-based agreements and contingency fees, I'm aware that that's something that we accept in England and Wales. But there are many jurisdictions that don't accept that they are valid means of funding litigation. So we are going to have to have a global discussion about how you allow claimants to bring these actions, how simply they can pay for the lawyers, because you can't On something as important as this rely upon people offering their services for free but if as a student you're looking at a way of gaining experience gaining skills gaining knowledge of what you can do and how you can do it then pro bono is a good introduction definitely
1: and i think as with everything equality is such a massive issue and those who are probably facing the worst of climate change at the moment are probably those who can't afford to bring such litigation. Um, But I think there are definitely an increasing number of students who would love to gain this kind of experience and exposure. So hopefully there'll be plenty of opportunities um, for people to be
0: able to do that. Well, maybe that's something we ought to think about. We ought to have a discussion within Gray's Inn on that. Is Is there some way we could assist some movement or project that we could get involved in definitely we'll
1: have to raise that at the next um student meeting (laughs) annie
0: kira i'm going to rely upon you two to do that
1: (laughs) i think
2: another really interesting pro bono opportunity perhaps more for the transactional lawyers among us than uh, people who who prefer to litigate um is the chancery lane project which enables Uh, corporate lawyers mostly to get together and draft model clauses and precedents for contracts which are aligned with sustainability goals. Um, I don't think you have to donate very much of your time to it but lots of people I know find it very rewarding and it's certainly been a very successful project in the time that it's been running.
0: It's done amazing work. I was looking at their website last week they are constantly growing and developing the clauses that they make available. And this is clauses for companies' articles, for almost all form- forms of transactions. And I think it's, they offer training, they say, drop in, drop out, just come along and help. I would strongly endorse that. We must capture that for the the news sheet, the information sheet after the broadcast.
1: Definitely. And I think maybe to round off as we're talking, about individuals and barristers taking action and lending their time to pro bono work. Maybe we could just end with why it's so important that the bar takes these issues seriously, and why particularly individual members of the bar um, get involved in initiatives like this follows um, organisation guidelines, and really get involved with the idea of sustainability, and what we personally can do to tackle it within our own practices.
0: Yeah, I agree. It is the the biggest challenge that we individually and as a profession now face. Do you think there's positivity and hope in sight? Absolutely. Just think, I mean, how many conversations do you now hear, participate in and get involved in on this topic? It has finally become something that is talked about regularly. And people are beginning to see the implications for their lives. I think it's a debate we will have for a long time. I think there will be different degrees of progress, different speeds of progress. But yes, there will be progress. We don't have an alternative.
2: Absolutely. I think the key is translating those conversations into action. And we're so privileged to work in a profession where the decisions that we make have a real world effect on our clients and on other people. And I think it's really incumbent on members of the bar to use that position to have a positive impact
1: on the climate crisis. Well, thank you so much to both of you for being here and, and talking today on this podcast, I know, know that I'm definitely more informed than I was an hour ago um, about the issues that we face in climate litigation and have a renewed sense of responsibility as well, I think, to take these issues seriously and to be aware of my own actions and what I can do going forward. So thank you very much to both of you. Thank you very much
2: for having me. Thank
1: you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review. And for more information, check us out on Twitter at AGI Students.